When I was 20 years old, I decided that that summer, summer after my, my junior year, I was not going to return home from college, but that I would get an apartment that summer instead. And so I found a place where I could get a short-term lease, and I found a roommate who was split rent with me, and we moved all of our things in and lived there for one whole week before our apartment was broken into, and all of our belongings were taken. Almost all of them. They, they left the theology books. I don't understand. It was a surprise really to no one but me. We had moved into a rough neighborhood. We had moved in the middle of the day all of our, our fancy electronics into that apartment. And even though it shouldn't have been surprising, it surprised me. I had just said yes to a call to ministry, a yes to a call that I had been fleeing from from years. And I had changed my major in college. I was, I was now a ministry major. And saying yes, all that led me to feel pretty indestructible. Living in a rough neighborhood, that, that wasn't a threat. God would protect me. He might even use me there. Uh, there, there might just be a revival that summer, uh, neighbors waving hankies and, and shouting hallelujah, but it didn't go that way. It didn't even go close to that way. Uh, there were definitely people who were saved. They were saved from having to go out and buy the things that they took from my apartment. They saved money on groceries because they even emptied my refrigerator. But I'm not so sure anyone came to know Jesus that summer during our brief stay there. Uh, losing our, our belongings was difficult, but more difficult still was when I realized that I was on the verge of losing my faith. I really did believe that God would protect us that summer. I really did believe that, that he would use us that summer. I, I really didn't expect any kind of hardship. Uh, I was naive, and I really did think that I was basically indestructible. God, as it turned out, was not who I pictured him to be. And that was just about the most frightening discovery of all that I faced. Just two months before starting my first semester in, as a ministry major in college, I had flawed expectations of who God was. And when he turned out to be very different than how I had imagined him, it not only shook up my summer as I was suddenly homeless and without any belongings, it shook up my faith as well. Not only was God not who I expected him to be, but the world, as it turned out, was more broken than I had realized. I remember thinking, well, that kind of thing happens to other people, not to me. And I had a, a kind of realization during that time, you know, this is hard. What I'm going through is hard, but people go through far worse things than this, far worse losses and, and far greater pain. And if God didn't protect me from this, Will he protect me from any of that? And if the answer is no, then life is scarier than I realized. And if the answer is yes, then why doesn't God protect those others who are going through far worse things? I had never asked any of those questions before. Until, until then, I didn't realize that they needed to be asked. I had lived a pretty sheltered life. I'd grown up apart from any kind of hardship. But now, for the first time, I was going through something challenging, something that in the broad scope of things was relatively minor compared to the pain that the world knows. 
And I came to realize two things that terrified me. One, God, in, in that summer I would have said, if there is a God, God is not who I thought he was. And number two, the world is desperately broken, filled with pain and violence and heartbreak. And it took me going through something relatively little to see the world's pain in a big way. But we're going to read a rather long passage this morning. And really, I only want to focus on the last four verses of the passage. But I don't think we could possibly do justice to this, this uh, section if we didn't go back to the previous chapter and explore this scene as a whole. And so in a moment, we're going to read from Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 4. And just to give you an idea of where we're starting, um, John, the revelator, the author of this, this uh, book, is writing a letter from the island of Patmos. And that is where he has been exiled. He's writing a letter to the churches in Rome. And he's writing in a format that isn't really well recognized today, but was a genre of writing that would have been widely recognized among ancient Mesopotamian cultures. This genre of writing is used in Jewish and Christian scriptures. It's in Daniel and some of the words of Jesus and here in Revelation, we call it apocalyptic. Apocalyptic doesn't refer to the end of the world like we might think. It, it refers to this style of writing. It uses vivid imagery to describe the world around it and often larger-than-life uh, scenarios, beasts and storms and cosmic warfare among gods, and it almost always unfolds in the context of a vision. Uh, so as we enter this passage in Revelation 4, it sets up the scene that we're really going to dig into in Revelation 5. And I know, I know that many of us are used to this idea that we're supposed to read Revelation with our calculators out, right? Like we're, we're adding up, we're doing complex math to find out what takes place in days ahead, but, but rather than trying to figure out mathematical formulas this morning, I just want to invite you to let the passage speak. Um, it begins with a vision that takes place in the throne room of God, something that'll be familiar to us because it's only been a few weeks since we explored God's throne in Isaiah 6. And so again, rather than just reading it, I want to invite us to enter it and to really step into God's presence. Revelation chapter 4 verses 1 through 5, verse 4. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, and the second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was a, like a flying eagle. Each of the four creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, they sing, who was and is and is to come day and night, they sing this song. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will, they were created and have their being. The scene is so filled with majesty and awe and love, so powerful in so many ways, but listen carefully to what comes next. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy? to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. What we find in these first four verses of Revelation 5 is so strikingly different than Revelation 4. In Revelation 4, we see the order of God's heaven, God constantly being worshipped on his throne. We see heaven functioning the way heaven is supposed to function, and the heavenly beings maintaining the order of heaven with constant praise. But in Revelation 5, we see something very different. John the Revelator knows earth is not the way heaven is. Earth is desperately broken. It is tragically and painfully filled with all kinds of horrors, and there is no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who is worthy to open the scroll sealed with seven seals. No one who is found worthy to open the scrolls that, uh, that unveil God's will for the world. No one who is worthy to set the world back to order. So what does John do? He weeps. He weeps because no one is found who is worthy to take away all of the chaos and the brokenness and the pain and set it all back to order. He weeps because the world is so very broken. When I had the incident in my apartment, it opened my eyes to the bigger needs of the world. I saw pain in the world that I might not have otherwise seen had I not undergone something myself. Pain that was bigger than my own inconvenience felt a little ashamed of not having seen it before. John does not need an event like that to see that the world is broken. He has seen the ways of heaven. He knows the contrast. He sees how heaven works and he knows how earth works. And when he sees that there is no one worthy to open the scrolls, to take all of the world's pain and set it right, he falls apart. He weeps. Any hope that he might have clung to suddenly disappears. Is earth doomed to its brokenness? Human hands can't fix this mess. We've tried. We've tried and we've failed. If no one is worthy, then how will any of this ever be set right? You know this pain. You know this hardship. 
You know the desperation of the world. What hope do we have if not the hope that one day things will be different? Isn't that longing in you too? The hope of something better. If not for ourselves, we often think them for our children. We want a better world for our children. Lord, take this mess and make it right. Lord, take our pain and heal it. Lord, take the tragedies of our world and resolve them. Draw your children near to you. We need you, Lord. John the Revelator, he just weeps because no one is worthy to open the scroll. No one is worthy. And we are all condemned to what is rather than what could be. He weeps. I do have a little hope, though. I was walking past a playground one day, and I, I heard about a dad who could beat up everyone else's dad. I'll bet he could open the scroll. There was a little boy at recess who, who, who said to all of the other little boys, my dad could beat up all your dads. Curiously, my son never said that. Apparently, though, what we need here is a dad. Happy Father's Day, by the way. Yeah, what we need is a dad who can beat up other dads. That dad will be strong enough to open the scroll. That dad will, will plow his way through anyone who tries to stop him. That pillar of masculinity, bulging muscles and raging testosterone, he'll beat up anyone who tells him he can't open the scroll. Uh, he for sure is the, the manly man we've been waiting for. John the Revelator is in tears, clearly not the portrait of a, a man fit to open a scroll, but in the next verse, he's given hope. In verse 5, it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. A lion, we should have known. Not, not somebody's dad. A fierce, dominant, powerful beast. Uh, an animal that strikes fear into anyone who encounters it with its massive paws and, and razor-sharp claws and teeth. If you're not afraid of its appearance, you'll surely be afraid of its roar. The Lion of Judah, the terrifying, powerful beast, can open the scrolls. Finally, we have hope. Finally, we have something powerful to hope in. But when John turns to face the beast, he sees something unexpected. Starting again in Revelation chapter 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth, into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons of every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and, and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 
They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So John the Revelator is given this hope, the dad who can beat up all other dads, or better still, the mighty and fearsome Lion of Judah has arrived to open the scroll. But when John turns to see the Lion... In perhaps one of the greatest twists in all of Scripture, he doesn't see the ultimate dad. He doesn't see the powerful lion. He sees the lamb who was slain. It's the lamb, not the dad who can beat up all other dads, not the lion, not might and power and force, not any of the world's greatest power or the strength of all nations and forces, but the lamb who was slain. It's the lamb was worthy of opening the scroll. And he took the scroll from the right hand of the one on the throne, and all of heaven erupted in praise. Finally, the earth will be set right. Finally, what is broken will be mended. What is wounded will be healed. All of heaven and earth and under the earth erupt in praise that finally things can be set right. It's a tremendous, unforeseen twist. The Lion of Judah is the Lamb that was slain. Do you see that one coming? It's perfect love and self-sacrifice and obedience through which God's will is accomplished. It's the Lion, not the Lamb, through which God's victory is won. Excuse me, it's the lamb and not the lion. It's blood offered and not blood taken. And we are so caught off guard by this because the world has never had an imagination that matches God's unforeseen greatness. The world has an imagination that says, my dad can beat up your dad. But the kingdom of God is found in the image of a father who outloves and outgives rather than one who outpunches the lamb not the lion. Pastor Carey did such a great job on Mother's Day, giving expression to so many complex feelings surrounding that day. And I know today after the service, um, some of us will go and visit our fathers or take them out to lunch or call them on the phone. Some of us will mourn fathers that we have lost or fatherhood that we were never able to experience, fathers who were never present for some of us, this will be a celebration, and for others, for many possible reasons, this will be a day of pain. Some of us had fathers who were like fearsome lions, and we had good reason to be terrified of them, whether for their, their drunken rage or their firm disciplinarian hand or their stiff rigidity and impossibly high standards and expectations. Others of us had fathers who were loving and self-sacrificial lambs, and we have good reason to celebrate them. We don't really talk about men as lambs, do we? In fact, our, our culture tells us that men should be like fierce lions. Often we talk about men in ways that assume that their role is to become like gods rather than to become like Christ. They should be providers. Men should be protectors. 
And yet both of those descriptions belong not to men, but to God. God is our provider. God is our protector. As Christians, instead of being called to some predetermined definition of manhood or womanhood, we are called to be like Christ. Even and perhaps especially when Christ-likeness clashes with cultural understandings of what constitutes manhood and womanhood. You see, we find in Jesus the image of true humanity, the only one who perfectly lives into his created purpose to worship, to love, to honor God, to live sacrificially. And the only image that we are called to conform to is the image of Christ. And that might be a lot easier for us if the image was something other than the image of the lamb that was slain. But when John the Revelator turned to see the only one who was worthy to set all things right, it was the lamb and not the lion that he saw. When my apartment was broken into, I had these awful dreams. Night after night after night, I had these awful dreams, dreams that I knew were unlike me, dreams that I was uncomfortable with. I had vivid dreams of hurting the people who had hurt me. I remember going to my pastor and asking for prayer and, and counsel, and I don't want this. I don't want to become this. It, it wasn't so much the, the losing of my things, but losing my sense of safety. Uh, those dreams, they terrified me. Something inside of me wanted to respond to my pain like a lion. The world wasn't as safe as I had naively thought, and I felt like I needed to take control of it myself. But as I started to heal from it, as God revealed himself to me, I finally began to know the lamb. And the portrait of God that I began to see was so very different than the God who I thought I knew. See, the thing about the lamb is that you would think that the lamb would be safe. What danger is there in a walking ball of wool? But the lamb wasn't safe. The lamb was slain. The lamb isn't the safe option, it's the costly option. Christ-likeness is pursued at a cost. The cost is our self-safety, our self-provision, our self-protection, our need and our pursuit of control. We release all of those things to God as we pursue the image of the lamb that was slain. And what I found is that I had been looking for God in the form of a lion. A lion doesn't have to sacrifice. A lion gets to dominate. I wanted not only to worship the lion, I wanted to be like the lion. But the lion isn't the one who sets the world right. Do you know what a dad who, who can beat up all other dads produces? Kids who beat up other kids. The lion doesn't set the world right. The lamb does. And praise God, it it took an upset in my life, but finally, after years of looking for the lion, I finally saw the lamb. Every Sunday, we gather and we pray for Christ-likeness. Lord, make us like you. We pray that the Holy Spirit would transform us, making us more like Jesus. Today, I want to invite you to reflect on who Jesus is. Because when we pray for Christ-likeness, we are praying, Lord, make me like the lamb it was slain. When we pray for Christ's likeness, we are repenting of the times when we have handled things like lions.
and asking God to change our hearts to be like sacrificial lambs. I want to invite you to reflect on who Jesus is with me this morning as we bow our heads in prayer. We praise you, Lord. the opportunity to come to know you as you are rather than some of the broken ways that we have imagined you. We repent of the ways that we have imagined you as a God who serves us rather than imagining ourselves as a people who serve God. pray that we would take up your causes as our own, that we would pursue your likeness for ourselves, and that we would come to know the lamb that was slain, the self-sacrificial love of the only one who can set things right. Make us like you, we pray that we would share in your mission, that we would partner with you to see a broken world healed according to the ways of your kingdom, the ways of your heaven. Father, we are invited this morning to repent of the ways that we have made ourselves like lions. to invite you to shape us to be like Jesus like the lamb who was slain we celebrate your work in our lives in our church the sense of, of calling that we share to, to be like you to do as you do share in your mission. Remind us, Father, that our mission is to love, to give sacrificially, to pursue the likeness of Christ, and to invite the world to know the ways of your kingdom. We love you, Lord. Make us like you, we pray.